Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way of Ramen podcast. Today's episode is a follow-up to last week's episode with Mike Satinover, aka Ramen Lord. We had a great discussion for about three hours on and off the record um, about various things relating to ramen. But for the second half of our conversation, he did an hour of Q&A of questions submitted by you guys on Instagram. Now we didn't get to answer all of the questions because there are just so many and he actually had answered a bunch of them in the interview. So if you haven't listened to the interview yet, please check out part one of the podcast with Mike Satinover. Um, this is the previous episode, episode three. And with that out of the way, here is one hour of Q&A with Ramen Lord. All right, let's get into the Q&A. I didn't actually, um, sort these questions. So I'm just going to list them off as we go, as they came into me. And so there might be some similar things that would have fit better thematically, but I guess we're just, and there's no post-production on this podcast. So I just going to, yeah, I, I, it's fine. No big deal. Okay. So this Let's is, go a, for it. this is the first, this is a big one right, right off the bat. So ramen addict asks, do you ever see yourself opening a ramen restaurant? Ramen addict. I know that. So I, I probably will know a lot of the people who ask these questions because yeah, yeah. I think the community is pretty tight. Yeah. So shout out to Ramen Addict. A cool guy. Love that guy. Um, do I ever see myself opening a ramen shop? I mean, I would never want to say yes or no to that question. Like I can't, you can't answer that question. Uh, ramen, the restaurant industry is tough, tough cookies, like the hardest industry to be in. And it requires crazy investment to get into. Uh, do you see yourself making money? Who knows? I think on the flip side, like it's clear in Chicago, at least that I have a pretty interesting following and there are people who want good ramen. So, you know, I'm never going to say never to the prospect, but it's got to be a good opportunity and it has to make sense financially. Unfortunately, the restaurant industry is profit driven, just like every other business. And so you need to be able to accommodate that truth. You can't just be an idealist who wants to make the best food, you will fail as a restaurateur. So you need to find the balance between profitability and your ultimate goal. I'm in the business world currently. I work as a marketing research consultant. So I know a lot about all the businessy side of things. So if, if you see my hesitation, maybe that gives you some pause. You know, A friend of mine posted on my comment, he was like, if you wanna make a million dollars in the restaurant industry, you know, put $2 million into a restaurant. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Cause that's the truth. Like 70% of restaurants fail in the first five years. Um, so 50% fail in the first year. Uh, being a successful restaurant requires uh, extremely razor thin margins. Most of the successful restaurants are because they open multiple shops. So the relative proportion of your revenue is low. Uh, you know, each, each shop might have a small margin, but it stacks. Gross. Uh, the economies of scale goes up. As you no, it's not even the scales. Like just think real simple math. Let's say restaurant A makes a million dollars in revenue, but they only make 10 grand in profit uh -huh. that would go into your pocket. Well, the restaurant itself is working and it's operating, but you yourself only get 10 grand. Uh -huh. If you open 10 of those though, now you're making a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred thousand dollars is nicer. Even if individually each restaurant doesn't make so much are small. money. Right. So this happens a lot. You see franchisees, people who mm -hmm. own franchises of restaurants, they'll open five or six, seven, eight, ten different restaurants yeah. in the area. They'll run restaurants around a city. And then even if one is only doing okay, it stacks together to net worth, net cash positive. So yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. That's a difficult thing to swallow if you're a Kodawari person too. Yeah, right? yeah. Because that's like Kodawari. the antithesis of Kodawari is like exactly it's focus, out, you know, hyper focus yeah. so you yeah. have to be able to find the balance yeah. and you know that's tough so do I want to open a restaurant I don't know maybe someday it's hard mm -hmm. to say right now it's like 
you have to think about the business of it. That's all you what, can do. What do you feel about like the ghost kitchen thing? Do you think that would work with ramen? Not no. at all? Because I think you have certain pillars you want to stand on with the dish. And one of my biggest ones is I don't want to really do a lot of takeout. I don't want to uh-huh. do a lot of delivery. Like I think the dish suffers dramatically when it does that. Now, mm-hmm. ramen for some reason is in a place where people want loads of takeout. So yeah. there is money to be made there. But I think the experience of it is you want to control as much of the experience as possible. You want the bowl temperature to be right. Yeah. You want the soup temperature to be right. You want the noodles to be cooked appropriately and not overcooked. <laughs> you want the toppings to be the appropriate temperature. You want it to hit the customer at the right time. And that is hard to do when you're delivering. Yeah. So there are workarounds, but it's never perfect. And I just don't think my audience is the same audience who wants delivery ramen. Uh-huh. You know, like I think people who order delivery food know what they're getting and mm-hmm. people who order in-house uh-huh. custom kodori ramen know the yeah. other thing and uh-huh. i don't know what the big overlap is you know so <laughs> uh, i, I just, I I just think- asked that question because i know that that's kind of like a trend where fast casual is going into ghost kitchens and yeah the, but it's for delivery right delivery, so, yeah yeah delivery you know the the estimates i saw were like the delivery food is planned to increase by like 3x in the next two to three years, uh-huh. it's gonna it's it's growing and it's growing like mad, skyrocketing yeah. as people become more interested in ordering on their phones and not leaving their houses. Yeah. But that is not the same as a restaurant experience. No, so then yeah. they're not replaceable. It's just a means mm-hmm. of getting food. Maybe you're cooking less instead of buying food, or you're just going out to eat less because you'd rather just eat. But they're different experiences. And I think both can coexist, but they are different. And as a result of them being different, I don't think that you can replicate them in the same way. It depends on what your pillars are as an individual, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm in marketing, I think about brand. Brand is paramount to why I'm able to exist in the first place because I have a brand for being obsessed (laughs) with ramen, right? Ramen Lord brand. Ramen Lord brand, (laughs) right? So what does that brand stand for? Well, for one, it stands for obsession and attention to detail and quality. Uh-huh. And those things I don't think go well with takeout yep. and delivery, right? Yeah. So as a means of delivering on the things that I want people to experience, it's te- it's challenging. It's not really a good idea uh-huh. in my opinion. Do you, this is like my question, but when you do your pop-ups, do you ever like see people get their bowl and then just start talking for 10 minutes and you're like, yeah, of just, course. just fucking eat the bowl. Well, <laughs> you ever like- look, I don't, so look, I don't get as angry about that as many other people do <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. because I know that although there was one time and I won't, I won't say too much detail. Yeah. On this, but the first pop-up I did with David at ramen lab, uh-huh. we, there were like two influencer types who came in and they took, photos for like 20 minutes with like uh-huh. lighting and, uh, and that was pretty frustrating but yeah. it was more frustrating because it was like you came to get clout rather than to enjoy the food yeah. that we put our lot of heart and soul into yeah yeah if you want to have a beautiful time with your significant other or your friends and that means having a chat before eating that's fine you came for the experience and i want you to have a good time but i don't like when people come just to like brag to their friends that's bizarre that's like, kind of like what american culture you, is becoming right i'm trying to give you a good experience right yeah. with a bowl of ramen ultimately i'm in the hospitality world and i like hospitality and food because i want you to have a good time and so mm-hmm. your good time is determined by you but 
it shouldn't be at the expense of like the food, right? Yeah, like you paid the food should it. be, you're paying for it. The food should be part of your enjoyment, uh-huh. right? You had a good time because you had a delicious meal with people that you respect. Isn't that crazy how like likes on Instagram is now worth more than the experience of the food for a lot of these people, you know? Isn't that kind of crazy? Maybe, I mean, I mean, you use that to build deals and sponsorships yeah, yeah. and whatever. I've met some influencers you know, I don't consider myself an influencer, but I've uh-huh. met a number of them who are also just charming and wonderful people though. So mm-hmm. it totally depends. It depends on why you're in the game. You know, I know certain influencers who just love food and so they find cool food and people reach out to them and those payments help them do other cool stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, the brand deals help them do other cool stuff. Uh, I will never pay an influencer <laughs> to do anything. Uh-huh. If I ever get an endorsement from anybody, it's totally earned media. It's never, I have never uh given somebody a deal i have never given away tickets i have never i've invited people over to my apartment but only because i enjoyed hanging out with them and wanted to talk to them um to me it's just not part of what i want to associate with i want to associate with people who love ramen first and foremost so if you love ramen you're cool by me that's (laughs) that's the primary thing you know cool so this actually this question is not in order but it kind of leads into that the ramen lord kind of Thing. Um, shoot, how do you pronounce this guy's name? R. Bukalan. I'm not sure. I don't think I know that one. Yeah. I don't think how, I know that one. Sorry how, in advance. <laughs> how do you feel about being one of the leading figures in the American ramen scene? So I don't think I am, but thank you. That's a very nice compliment. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't even say that I am. I, for one, I don't own a restaurant. I don't do, I don't make money on ramen except for pop-ups, which are more by necessity. You have to, cause you're selling something and buying mm-hmm. things. So you have to make money. I just like ramen and want people to like ramen. And I want people to like good ramen and think about ramen as a food that can be elevated and can be done with uh, intention and design and thoughtfulness. It doesn't have to just be junk food. It doesn't just, have to just be this gluttonous bomb of carbs and fat. It can be more nuanced and thoughtful, um, just like it is in in modern era Japan. So, you know, I post recipes. I just want people to start thinking about ramen and seeing that it's widespread and uh, dynamic and ever-changing and to get them to think a little bit more about it. You know, at the last class I did in New York last month, I served this new wave show you bowl, which is, you know, I serve the new way of show you bowl, which is again, chicken, soy sauce, and water, but just really high quality elements of each. And the goal was not to be like, this is the most banging ramen you're ever going to have or the craziest ramen, but just to get people to think like, wow, like it doesn't, it can be this way. It, it doesn't have to be a particular style. There's lots of styles that exist in this dish. That's one of the fascinating components of ramen is that it, it exists on a continuum of asari all the way to kote yeah. and all in between. And the noodles are thick or thin and alkaline or yellow or whatever and, and thin and brittle. And like they can, everything exists on a scale of uh, assessment. It's never just one particular dish that sits in its own bubble. Right? right. So if people can realize that about ramen, they'll explore more. That's my hypothesis. And my goal has just been to educate people that those opportunities are out there. There's not just one style. So if I've become an influencer, I guess it's just because I did that, but I don't, I don't see myself as one. There's so many of us out there doing it. You're doing it. Uh, David's doing it. Mark's doing it. Keizo's doing it. Uh-huh. Restaurant tours across the country are doing it. You know, it's like, 
we are a group of people. It's mm -hmm. not just one singular handful of individuals. How did, so this is another question. Hella Raman asks, what made you decide on the name Raman Lord? Hella Raman. Yes. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, All right. I guy so too. I recognize another one. Okay. Um, Raman Lord was a joke that I came up with in 2012. So I was unemployed and depressed and uh, wanted to just burn time to get my mind off of the fact that I didn't uh -huh. have a job out of college. So I had been making ramen for a couple of years. So I was just like, this is sort of dorky. And it's like, oh, ramen lord. Like, uh. I was originally gonna call myself ramen god or something, but I thought that was like, <laughs> too presumptuous, even, even for me. So I was like, oh, ramen lord, whatever. And I just made an account on Reddit, not really wow. thinking too much about it, right? Yeah, it just yeah. is like, oh, I make ramen and it's just kind of dorky and fun. But as I started posting stuff, I think people were just like, oh, this guy's calling himself ramen lord. He must be the mm -hmm. real deal. And that was, and it just kind of came from that. It was never meant to be anything more than a joke though, frankly. And just like one that I was like, came up with like to pass the time uh -huh. becoming employed basically. I wish I had like, again, like as serendipitous as it may be. I wish there was a really interesting, thoughtful story, but it was a joke. That's just the joke. Uh, okay. okay. I'm looking through these questions and actually we answered a lot of them in the interview section. So I'm going to skip around here. That's fine. Um, so this is what, this is a question that I was actually meaning to ask you in the interview, but I never got okay. around to it. I completely forgot. So Chrome coconut wants Chrome you to talk coconut. about Chrome coconut wants you to talk about using the brick scale and how it can use it. The brick in, scale. In so spoiler making. alert, I don't use the brick scale anymore. Oh my God. Terrible. Oh, okay. I stopped using it uh, first initially by accident and now just in general, I don't. I think it's, I think people fixate on this really big and then they don't fixate on fundamentals. So Could you talk I've about what of, the BRICS scale is for people? Yeah, that so don't know what it let's is. go super yeah. big picture. So BRICS is a uh, unit of measurement originally used to identify the amount of sugar that is in a solution, dissolved in solution. It's commonly used by winemakers and beer makers because you can see how much sugar is in the solution initially before you ferment it out. And then you can understand what the relative alcohol percentages or the specific gravity of the final wine or beer. So super common to use in uh, these industries, right? With sugar, because that's what it's for. It's for measuring sugar. However, ramen chefs have co-opted this scale as a proxy for dissolved solids in total. And so when you, and so when you think about what a soup is, what is a soup? Well, it's water that has a bunch of stuff dissolved in it. Typically it's got gelatin dissolved in it and it's got flavors, but mostly gelatin, right? That's the primary thing that's actually in solution. And so bricks can actually measure by definition then approximate the amount of dissolved solids in a soup. And in this case, gelatin. So you're able to understand how much gelatin is in your relative soup. Why is this important? Well, if you, uh, are making a tone quotes as an example, you want to know, have you cooked it sufficiently? Have you extracted enough gelatin? And have you over or under boiled it so that the texture is appropriate? The difference between a really high gelatin soup and a really low gelatin soup is one is sticky and gross and one is nice and pleasant to drink. So the brick scale allows you to understand where you are on that continuum, right? You have a digital number. It's typically used less in the actual cooking process because bones cook and then they're extracted and that's it. And it doesn't matter how much or how little water you have, but it's done after the fact to understand if you over or under boiled the soup, does it have enough body? So like if I have a vat of tonkotsu sitting in the back, it's gonna have continuous evaporation. Water is going to be going into the air because I've heated it to maybe 190 degrees Fahrenheit or even higher maybe. 
And so there's some evaporation that's happening. And while that's happening, the relative amount of gelatin content is increasing, right? Because two quarts of water with a certain amount of gelatin and then one quart of water with the same amount of gelatin, there's more relative gelatin. And that means that that broth is now gross. So if you want a consistent product, checking the bricks occasionally helps you achieve that consistency. So very common in bigger shops with lots of soup going and lots of, and not a lot of time to churn through. I think less common in more small mom and pop shops. Oh. It's just not, so like, do I use bricks? Uh, do I need it for my soup? Not really. I mean, part of it's frankly experience, but like if I cool a soup and I look in the, in the fridge, I can look at how gelatinous it is and be like, that's over or under what I want. Uh -huh. Right. You just see it and you're like, this thing is super solid. Like it's like a chunk. That's too much gel. Mm -hmm. Or if it's too liquidy and if it's flowing too much, Oh, it's not enough gel. Right. Uh -huh. And you can adjust accordingly. But I think as a person who's very scientific, like people assume like, Oh wow, Mike's gotta be using, bricks he's got to have bricks and the reality of it is like as we were discussing earlier it's a combination of intuition and science and i think you don't want to focus too much on one or the other bricks i think makes people feel like they're really scientific but in reality all they're doing is just doing something that they can figure out by tasting it right you try some soup is it too gelatinous is it too thick and gross add some water to it is it too thin boil it a little bit that's really all there is to it like so i just don't think you need it like it seems really cool. It's like, oh wow, new thing to measure soup with, but it doesn't actually help you. Like it just, uh, it, you're better off trusting your palate and understanding what you like than being like, did I hit the seven or did I hit yeah, the eight? Yeah, 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 for sure. I I see the Japanese use the bomes. Is that how you pronounce it? Bomb. Bom, bom, I think it's yeah. bomb. Bomb scale. Yeah. I see That's for kansui. That. That's uh -huh. for kansui because that also measures a certain like density of liquid so you can use bomb to identify how much uh how much either alkaline salts or even salt is dissolved uh -huh. into water so okay. the reason that ramen shops typically use this is because they're making a kansui solution and they're not doing what you and i do which is say i want six grams of, mm -hmm. i want 100 grams of water and i want 1.2 grams of kansui. Uh -huh. they're doing i have water big jug of water <laughs> and i need to add enough alkaline salts to get to a bomb I of see, six I, I need to get to a specific gravity of six and then when i hit that then i have enough alkaline salts so to me that's like that's silly because potassium carbonate's gonna be the same potassium carbonate <laughs> today and tomorrow it doesn't yeah, yeah. like it doesn't change in alkalinity it doesn't like absorb things from the air and you should, it shouldn't be because you're covering it uh -huh. keeping it in a tight container so it's just easier for me to be like one 1.2 of this and 0.8 of this and then we're good. So I, I, it's just the nature of which some people have decided to do it and then other people decide to do it the way that I do it, which is by measuring all the components. Yeah. That's how I've done it too. Cool. I think it's easier, right? Like it's yeah. just, otherwise you gotta, you gotta buy a bomb thing that like yeah, kind of yeah. floats in the water <laughs> and then you have to, you have to hope that like you don't overdo it. And yeah, yeah, because it, you can't you take it back. Add I mean, more water, more water like, yeah. you're constantly balancing it. It's like, mm -hmm. instead just be like hundred grams of distilled water, yeah. 1.2 grams of this, I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about anything else. Go, <laughs> yeah. go. Cool, cool. So Nama Japan asks, what, what are your thoughts on ramen restaurants that go on and turn into franchises or chains? What's up, Nam in Japan? I met that guy in Tokyo in April. It was fun. Yeah. I had a good time. He's a cool guy. I met him with Ramen Guy Japan. That was crazy. He ended up like two shops one day, <laughs> like one evening. Anyway, his question, what do I think of places that franchise? Uh, 
I mean, when you franchise, you immediately do two things, right? The first is you centralize production of some components. And the second is you accept that your quality is going to diminish considerably because your ability to focus on the particulars is diminished. So what does that usually entail? Well, what are the things that people would commonly centralize or try and uh, make consistent from all the shops? Those are soups and those are tares, guaranteed, 100% of the way. You know, chashu and stuff is a little more forgiving, cutting green onions, I don't know, <laughs> not a big deal. But the tare is the seasoning component and it's super integral to the flavor and the soup is, is also really integral to the flavor. And then of course there's noodles, but a lot of guys are just buying noodles anyway. So that's already been outsourced. That's unlikely to be, if they are making them, then they'll outsource that too. But most of the time they're buying them anyway, because of a lot of reasons which I won't get into. Mostly of which is just, it costs a crazy amount of money to make noodles. Yeah. So uh, when you franchise, you're gonna push away that soup making process and that tare making process. There are a couple ways you can do this. One is to create a commissary kitchen that is centralizing the production in one facility. And so that means that every batch is consistent, right? Because it's all coming from the same batch. So one soup gets divided among all these shops. But that's not always ideal because now you gotta rent space, you gotta figure out who's gonna run the commissary kitchen and they're just doing the central thing. and They're gonna have to be okay with just making only soup and only tie and like it's gonna be hard to find people's staff, blah, blah, blah. So what they'll do instead is they'll just outsource it to a company who will make it for them. And this is where package pre-made soup bases kind of become a thing, right? Yeah. The more you grow and more you franchise, the more appealing that option becomes. So it's just hard. Like I've seen places that don't do it this way, but they're wildly inconsistent because uh -huh. soup making is challenging and it's not as simple as just like if A, then B. There, There's a little bit of art and science to it. You gotta like look at it, smell it. You gotta be like, that needs a little bit more of this. this I need to skim this a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. There's some judgment, inherent judgment in the process that only comes with experience and it's difficult to train out. So how do you feel about franchises? I don't know. How do I feel about franchises of anything? It's like, <laughs> you know what the quality is going to be. It's going to yeah. drop a little bit. It might not drop all the way, but it's not going to be the same as one person who has the intense fixation on it. You know, these places will never be Motenashi Kuroki because yeah. they don't got a Kuroki in the mix. Like <laughs> he's sitting there making that Shio ramen on day one. He's involved. He's going to have his eye on it. So it's going to have a certain level of quality. Uh -huh. And you just how can't do that in a franchise level. How do those like, um, those Japanese restaurants open American locations. Like how did they do like, the same thing? They, they the Tare is made in Japan. It's oh, okay. shipped, over. shipped over soup. Soup may be outsourced. Mm -hmm. If it's not noodles are definitely outsourced. They're not, they're never making noodles in house it, except like each, uh, Ichiran in New York built a noodle making facility, oh, but wow. it's, the, it's a commissary place that will uh -huh. distribute noodles to all the other locations. Uh, you know, so it's just that it's like, outsource components of the production to make things consistent across mm -hmm. the different franchises. Cool. Cool. I mean, if you think about it, right? Like it's the same with McDonald's, right? What did <laughs> McDonald's, so McDonald's invents the franchise model for That's restaurants. True. Yeah. And their genius was to be like, well, we centralize production of the components elsewhere. And that allows us to have intense uh, consistency across our different branches. If we get all of our buns from this manufacturer, then all the buns will be the same. We get all of our chicken nuggets from Tyson over here, then all the chicken nuggets will be the same. And that allows us to have intense uh, consistency. The goal of a franchise is to be extremely consistent. Um, so you you're, you are heavily incentivized to push out production to a central manufacturing place. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you own that 
or whether or not it's somebody else is up oh. to the individual business, but you accept that you're going to do that as part of the operations. I see. I see. All right. Adam Dorn asks, what are the best resources for learning how to make ramen? Man, geez, I don't know. That's tough. I <laughs> Japanese think- books. <laughs> No, the Japanese books are not great because really? they're very, they're often very technical and also uh-huh. they are specific to the restaurant and they do things in restaurant quantity. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. So a couple resources, obviously I like my recipes. Yeah. I think they're a good starting place. I like your videos. I think they're a good starting place. The book, um, yeah, I'm like a little intimidated by Ryan's content. No. It's kind of putting it out right now. This is pretty cool. Um, I really like, uh, I think Ivan's book is awesome. It's a little technical, but it really shows you like his thought into his dish, which I really think is awesome. And I really like this book, Let's Make Ramen, that I happen to be a guest appearance in by uh, Hugh Amano and Sarah Beacon, two of my friends in Chicago. They did this awesome cookbook, ramen cookbook. Uh, this Sorry, this comic ramen cookbook, which has got kind of all the basics and it just lays them out. So I really like that book too. I think if you have to do one, that's probably a good place to start just to see all the different things. And then you can kind of expand uh, to my recipes, Ryan's recipes, things that are posted online. There's not like one central place that I could just say, go here and you'll learn everything because it's a complicated dish. There's so many variants, but you should, it's easy to get started. Cool. Yeah. My recipes are just, Japanese recipes translated to English. I don't, I'm <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I started there in a lot of ways too, you know, like yeah. you have to start somewhere. You look at, let's see what other people are doing. It's just eventually you're like, maybe this isn't actually working. Yeah. I, the, the video that I'm going to put out soon, I, I, I copied a recipe from Japan and it turned out it wasn't actually that great, even though I thought it was going to be great. So, yeah. So, um, Nichijo ramen. So David asks, what's the hardest aspect of ramen for you? artist of it does he mean i don't know what he means so I, i'm thinking he's trying to like answer this. the the hardest aspect of making ramen or, or you can ask so, you can answer it philo- philosophically think, if you want to well <laughs> yeah right so you see what i'm saying like yeah yeah, yeah. component wise noodles far and away are the hardest uh-huh. like noodles are very complicated despite their simplicity there's only four ingredients that are mandated the japanese government requires by legal standing that in order for you to make and call a noodle a ramen noodle that must contain kansui, which are alkaline salts. Uh, those alkaline salts can vary by composition and type, but you must have at least 0.01% in your final noodle in order to call it a ramen noodle. So it's got wheat, it's gotta be wheat noodle, that's also required, it's gotta have kansui, and then you'll probably have salt because salt in the noodle is important, and you'll have water because otherwise you can't make the noodle. But everything else is kind of like whatever you wanna do. You can kinda of go nuts. But those four ingredients on their own are complicated and they interact with each other in a complicated and precise way. And the difference between adding 35 grams of water to a noodle for every 100 grams of wheat and 36 grams is noticeable. And so little tiny adjustments can have large impacts on the final uh, resulting dough and resulting noodle. So they are inherently complex and there's not a lot of room for error. You gotta be really in tune with it. Um, With the right equipment, it can get easier. You know, they make those 60K noodle machines that these ramen shops use, but it's still complicated. It's just a complicated component of the dish. It's so when people say I want to make ramen, I'm the first thing I'm like, is you should just buy Sun Noodle. They're delicious. They're super well made. I love the guys at Sun. They make a beautiful product. 
or any noodle for that matter, if you can't find sun, you know, there are other noodle manufacturers in the United States that make great ramen noodles. Buy your noodles. Don't waste your time doing this. You will feel super deflated. You'll hate yourself. Uh, and it's hard and you need special equipment. I don't want to make people buy any more special equipment. You know, huh. you can make soup in any pot that you have. Do you have a pot in your house? You can make soup, right? You can make tare in any pot that you have. You don't need special equipment for it. Uh -huh. You do need special equipment for noodles. So uh, noodles are definitely the hardest in terms of physicality, but in terms of philosophy with ramen, the, the challenge is always balance. So you want the right balance of richness, of flavor, of intensity, of noodle pairing, of toppings and composition. And all of these things are interplaying with one another. A really light soup can, can have more oil on it. So you're seeing these new wave show use, they've got like 30 milliliters of oil, yeah, which is like two tablespoons yeah. of oil, right? If you do a tonko to it, that's gonna be disgusting. It's yeah. gonna be awful. But then how do you balance the noodles with that? The noodles are often softer in the new wave show you. Uh, you don't want a soft noodle in a, in a tonko too. It's going to feel gross. So you're always balancing all of the components together. And that's, that's very difficult. The, the thing I think that works for me is like starting from styles. So I think a lot of uh, chefs in America just want to go and they just want to go hard. But studying the individual styles and seeing why they work well together or what components work well, I think helps set you up to understand the relationship of those. And that's why it's hard because it's not intuitively obvious why a shoyu works so well or why a miso ramen works so well or why this shio with clams in it works so well. You have to understand how those five components of ramen interrelate to one another. Yeah, so, so that, kind of, that kind of leads right into this next question is from Marcus Schwartz. I, I, it's, I don't know what, if that's his exact name. But he says, how do you know what noodles will match which broth? Yes, so... I only have a hypothesis on this from my own intense amount of noodle making that I've done over the last 10 years. Um, I think that there, first of all, there are no like hardcore rules. There's no like this soup needs this noodle and this soup needs this noodle. What I will say is as your soup increases in either salinity, richness, or complexity and flavor, your noodle must increase in what I call presence. And when I say presence, I mean, you should notice that noodle more in your mouth. So what defines what presence is? Well, presence just means you are amplifying one of several components of the noodle, either the thickness of the noodle, so in other words, you feel more noodle in your mouth, the rigidity or chewiness of the noodle, so the texture of the noodle is amplified, or the flavor of the noodle. So you're either adding wheat to the noodle to amplify the wheat flavor, or you're adding additional alkaline flavor to make it more alkaline. Or some combination thereof increases the presence. In other words, a really soft, delicate noodle it's not going to be good with a really intense, vibrant soup. And similarly, a really intense, chewy, dense noodle is going to be completely overshadowing a very delicate, light soup. Your play, if you just think about this one rule, you'll make better pairings. Now, there's all sorts of nuance to that. Do you want curls in your noodle? Do you want it square cut? Do you want it round cut? Do you want it to be yellow? Do you want it to be white? Do you want it to have egg in it? Do you want it to have more sodium in the in the bill, more potassium in the bill. There's lots of questions, but that's a good starting point. So like, if you just think about the dishes that you eat in ramen, the common styles, they tend to follow this rule. Tokyo shoyus tend to have more gentle noodles because the soups are a little more refined, a little lighter. Shio ramen tends to have lighter noodles, especially these like seafood based ones with clear mm -hmm. soups. Tonkotsu's 
got these thick boy, they either got super thick boy Jiro style noodles or they've got really wiry, intensely brittle, like sharp noodles that cut through the soup, right? They're, they're balancing out the richness. So they have high presence in the soup. So the presence is like the one thing that I always say, like, does your noodle have presence? Mm -hmm. Is it an appropriate amount of presence relative to the actual soup that you're trying to pair it with? Yeah, that's, that's really, that's some great insight. I'm kind of learning that this week because I was trying to put together this, this bowl of like uh, Kumamoto style tonkotsu ramen this week. And it's just like- Kumamoto style tonkotsu is a great example of this because it takes, so it does a couple things, right? So Hakata style tonkotsu is pig. Uh-huh. Pig. There's never, there's hardly ever chicken in it. Yeah. Kumamoto pulls that back and adds some chicken to it, yeah. which reduces the intensity of the soup somewhat mm-hmm. because the pork is super funky and gamey and you're kind of getting uh-huh. rid of that with some of the chicken. But then it adds Mayu, right? Mayu is yeah, from yeah. Kumamoto. So Mayu is super intense. Yeah. And in fact, like American shops often add way too much. Like <laughs> you need like a quarter teaspoon, right? Yeah. Like just a tiny bit to, to bump it up. So the noodle in a Kumamoto bowl is simultaneously not as brittle as a Hakata style mm-hmm. one, but not as refined as like a shoyu one. It's still a yeah. little chewier, still a little thicker. It's like they've played with the balance a little bit more in an interesting way. Yeah, it's, it's like one of the things that I've been finding challenging now is just getting all the components to work together. You know, like when I think about a good bowl of ramen, it's like everything is supporting each other in the right way and they're not fighting yes. for attention yes and the the you're gonna see the video it's a, it was a hot mess like it, everything was just fighting with each other you know it's like it, but they, it looks nice like they take a nice family picture like everybody's smiling yeah 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 but, the bowl looked you, beautiful when you yeah, posted it to instagram it looked great. But, but but when you when you eat it it's like oh this this family yeah. has a lot of problems <laughs> behind the scenes <laughs> nobody's getting yeah. along yeah. but yeah. they take a nice family picture together yes so that's, that's what i mean you know that earlier question uh-huh. from david it's like that is what that's the trick like yeah. that's the that's the challenge like make the bowl balanced make yeah. it feel like nothing is overshadowing something mm-hmm. else that is the tricky part it's super hard it's the hardest part of any dish really it's like yeah. finding balance i think american chefs when they do that they often rely on adding new flavors to balance out mm-hmm. so oh this is too funky let's add something to balance it out but in ramen, you kind of can't do that. Sometimes you have to pull back. You have to be like, well, maybe yeah. I need to change this component instead. It's tricky though, man. It's hard. Yes. There's just no two ways about it. It's hard. It's really hard. I'm learning more and more how hard it is. All right, let's see. Learning's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of these. Uh, I feel bad. Like I want, I want to ask everybody's question, but we actually answered a lot of them in the previous episode and so far going this way. So, oh, here's a good one. Mr. and Mrs. Chopsticks asks, are there times where you lose motivation or not? And if you do, what do you do to get it back? And I guess, I guess they're talking about like, sure. So, so I think first of all, whenever you're in the process of designing something, you should expect to fail, right? This is the creator's paradox that you will create something and know that the first iteration is going to be worse than in subsequent creations, right? Uh, did I say this earlier on the podcast? I don't remember. It's like a mantra that as a mantra that I spit out regularly. So, and it, it helps keep me grounded because I'm going to recognize that in a new challenge, I'm going to probably fuck it up, mm-hmm. frankly. Like it's It's going to be bad the first go, the first second go. Um, 
but once you're in like fifth or sixth, man, it still might not be per- turning out. And so I think it's helpful to recognize one, it's not the end of the world if you fail, to be comfortable with failure. And two, to recognize that for me, at least there's no time pressure, right? Like if I have a project that's just not panning out, I can table it and go do something else and then come back to it later, right? So I never, I never put time pressure on myself for my tasks, you know? This Tonkotsu Gyokai recipe that I published this year, it must have taken six or seven years to make and a lot of failure. And I would just like do it for a while and hate it and then leave and then I'd come back and do it again and then figure something else out, but still not be quite there. So it was just on and off. And that's why it took so long, but there was no pressure. Like I didn't have anybody breathing down my neck and it was okay (laughs) to be like, it's, you know, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'll worry about it later. Conversely, the new wave show you, it's like, I nailed that like on day one. Like I just did it one day and I was like, Oh man, this is it. Like it didn't take, any effort at all. And I think that's the other, there, this is sort of a tangent, but there is an inherent, society thinks that like, oh, creation must be exhausting and it must take energy and the best things take a lot of effort to make. And, you know, art and science are all about rigorous and intense work to make beautiful things. And the reality is that's like, that's only kind of true at best. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes you land on stuff serendipitously. Sometimes mm-hmm. it didn't take that much effort at all. That doesn't make it better or worse. Yeah. Ultimately, the product itself is good or it's bad. Yeah. Um, so I'm just looking for a good product. I'm looking for a good final result. I don't care about how much time it takes me. And I'm willing to walk away from it if I'm getting like kind of bogged down in the details and need to take a break. So like I'm working on this whole like bubble analysis where I'm trying <laughs> to figure out like how to get cool bubbles on ramen. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just, like last week I was like, I'm not going to worry about that. Like I'm, this is not panning out. Oh, whatever. I'll figure it out later. Right. And I'll do something else instead. I thought that was hilarious where you're like, you po- you keep posting it. So I, every time you post it, like, oh yeah, I should try to find something to see if I could help Mike out. And I'll send you a link and you'll be like, I read that article. Or, yeah, <laughs> like, every somebody, single- it, somebody, somebody was like, I had a friend over and we were like yeah. messing around with a couple theories I had. And uh-huh. he was like, oh, well, this guy on Reddit said this. Like he said, <laughs> it's mostly gelatin content. And I looked yeah. at it and it was me. He <laughs> saw me. He found me talking about this six years ago. Six years. Like, yeah, he was like, this guy on Reddit says it's gelatin. I was like, oh, yeah. oh it's Rowling Lord. It's me. <laughs> I wrote this six years ago. So like you just <laughs> you just have to accept that like we're always learning. We're all trying to learn together, but you can't you have to be willing to walk away. Like don't get bogged down in it. If you're I'm lucky that I have that, that's kind of uh I guess a privilege really of doing this as a hobbyist is I can do that, right? That's I don't true. there's no time pressure. Do Tomorrow you feel- I was like, yeah. Do you feel like, like, I don't, I don't really know, but do you feel like in the ramen community, there's a lot of people that want to come off like they know what they're doing, but actually everybody's yeah. just figuring, I think that's like life in yeah, general. Yeah, for sure. For adults sure. are, adults are. Because, because expertise is intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Like we want power as people. We want to look, we want to look powerful. We want to look informed. We want to look capable. And I struggle with this too, because like, it's, it, it, I have to actively say like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. I have to actively be willing to tell people I don't know the answer to this or I'm not sure. Um, and cause there's lots of times where I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. the answer. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm learning still all the time. Uh-huh. Um, but the difference is that I want to be in that place. Right. Like if I ever got to a position where I was like, Oh man, I just know everything. I think I'd be done. So what motivates me to keep going is the lack of knowledge. So when people ask me a question, I don't know, it's actually like, Oh, Maybe I should learn that now. Right? <laughs> but it is intoxicating to be seen as an expert. 
because you get admiration from being an expert, you get popularity from being an expert, mm -hmm. you get, and that's true of anything, not just ramen. Yeah, yeah. Ramen definitely has that, but it's true of anything. I think the mark of a true, uh, per, a true professional or a true person of wisdom is knowing that you don't know everything, being willing to admit that you're wrong, but also being curious enough to try and find out, mm -hmm. right? I think I like to sit in that line. So that's just where I go for it, honestly. It's like, <laughs> admit you're wrong, but go for it. And I've always yeah. wanted to admit that I'm wrong all the yeah, time. Yeah. It's a very scientific thing to admit that you're wrong, right? Like, it's better for the community to admit that you're wrong. I also think uh, about the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, like where people who, the, the people who are getting to something and they get a little bit of knowledge think they're experts. Yes. The, the longer that they go through the process, they learn how much they don't know. And then yes. their confidence drops so much to the point that so much to the point that when they actually become an expert at it, they don't realize that they actually. Well, do I think I'm probably about. there, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Not to have hubris, but like I on I all the time think like, oh man, I don't know anything. Like, yeah, I barely, yeah. Know, I barely know anything about this stuff. Like someone's like, you should teach a class. I'm like, what? Teach a class? <laughs> and I saw I'm one of the like, comments on for your last class where someone was like. You, you really got to give out like a handout of the, the things that you're talking about. Cause it was already like, uh, yeah, like so high. far above. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that just shows that like, you know, you, you do, you are at the point now where. You well, it's went funny, that right? Valley, like, you know, I wrote this, Valley. yeah, it's funny, right? I, like I wrote this series of, uh, of articles for the takeout about uh -huh. different components of ramen. And I remember definitely getting into the weeds and my editor at the time was like, you got to pull back. Like this is too much. <laughs> like, I'm a scientist. He was like, he was like, I'm a scientific guy, but this is way too much. Like, uh -huh. No one will be able to follow. So uh -huh. like, yeah, I think we kind of get lost in our own heads. That's true. Cool. cool. Yeah. It's, 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 man, it's, I just have to say, it's been fun. Really, really, really fun for me to talk to you because it's hard for me to find anybody to talk to ramen about just in general. I still got a lot of questions. I just wanted to give you that. Comment. No, no, thank yeah. you, man. I mean, I only talk ramen. I'm a little obsessed, so it's not, <laughs> not difficult for me. It's more difficult for, uh, everyone else in my life who's like, yeah. have yeah. other stuff. But I want to, before we continue, I want to just clarify something. Like you should be a multidimensional person, uh -huh. you know, like I love ramen, but I like other stuff too. Oh, like, yeah. I have a whole life, right? Like uh, it is okay to like have other things going on and not just be a ramen person or not just be a one thing person. We, that is a wonderful thing to be heavily in mm -hmm. love with something, but don't let it become your only Thing in life <laughs> i guess is what i'd say even the most wonderful ramen chefs in japan still like yakiniku you know they still like yeah. onigiri right you know you know they still like photography or skiing you know like be a multi-dimensional person is what there, there was a question that kind of went into i'm trying to find it right now that was asking about you know besides ramen what are you into sure I, I, yeah if you i mean i can answer that question yeah. while you try and give credit to it <laughs> yeah. i think uh I have a host of different weird things. I mean, I love cooking in general and, you know, I cook ramen with some regularity, but like I eat lots of other stuff too. I love food of all different kinds. Um, I'm super into photography. So like I have my camera sitting on my table right here, just like a little 77D from Canon. I like just doing photography, both of food, but also of other things. Um, I'm into biking, you know, I bike around the city pretty regularly. I love biking, going on the trails, going on the Lakeshore path. Uh, I used to be, I used to be really into weightlifting, but I've kind of dropped off on that. <laughs> that's just me being lazy. That's not because I don't enjoy it. It's just because I'm lazy. 
And you know, I, you know, I play a little video games too, you know, just a normal person. Like there's more to me than just ramen, even if like it is an important component of my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Winston Churchill said that you should always have a couple of hobbies other than your, you know, your job. So he was during the middle of like World War II, he was like painting, you know? Yeah. Kind of crazy to yeah. think about. You would think that that's, that's that would good. take all of his all You want to be a well-rounded person. Yeah. You want to like, like, please be passionate. Passion yeah. is awesome. But also please don't become one-dimensional and boring. Yeah. Like humanity is vibrant and diverse and it's important to be part of that diversity and that vibrance. You should check out uh, calisthenics if you've been into weightlifting because that's kind of like what I was into too in college. No, dude, I, just... I, I couldn't do that because I don't know, like this is definitely a tangent, but there's something <laughs> about just like getting really strong that's like addictive. Like, Yo, no, I was, I was 100% invested into lifting weights in college. And so yeah. I was like, that was my thing too. But then as I got, a, I got a family now. Like and stuff, picking so up, like, I don't know, you know, like you deadlift, you pick up like 300 pounds. You're just like, yeah. oh man, I picked up 300 pounds. Yeah. Here. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? I know exactly, but I know exactly how that feels, but I'm just too old to do it now. So I, I found balance in doing something. That's what it is. Yeah. But it's like you, everybody has the things that are yeah. motivating to them. Cool. I can't find the, I can't find who asked can't that question. Find maybe Sorry it was, to the honest person who submitted Maybe it was um, show from Serious Eats that asked something similar. But He submitted something else. Oh, it, it was, was it was more about like, what's your favorite noodle dish that's not ramen? Yes, show asked me that question. Yeah. He said, what's your favorite noodle dish outside of ramen in the U.S.? Yeah. There's so many. I mean, I live very close to, well, like relatively. So in Chicago, there's this, well, without like sounding mildly racist, it's called Asian Argyle. <laughs> uh, it's an area of Chicago that has a ton of Vietnamese restaurants and uh-huh. a lot of pho, like a lot of pho. And I actually did a course on Vietnam's business uh, business system and, and culture in undergrad. So I'm a little familiar with Vietnamese food and I love pho. Like if we were picking another noodle soup, like pho is delicious too. I've definitely seen people try and mix the two. I have a friend, Michael, who lives in Uptown, also with me in the same kind of neighborhood. And he did this crazy ramen with like, he's Vietnamese and he did this crazy ramen with like these interesting Vietnamese flavors. It was like a shoyu, but it had interesting like spices in the soup uh-huh. and tare. And I was like, you know, you don't want to go to one, to one direction or the other. Like you have to find the soul of what ramen is and maintain that, but it's interesting to pull elements of your, uh, your culture or your things that you love and incorporate them into your own cooking. And I think he did a beautiful job of that. And pho is just like a, a similar, but also very different dish. And so they're different eating experiences, but I love, I love ramen. I love ramen. I also really love pho. Like, Cool. I don't love it as much as ramen. Like, let's be real. Yeah. But, like, yeah. but do I love as much as ramen? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Let's. I'm. I'm struggling to find questions that we haven't answered yet. Um, I can. I can take a look at some of the. Ones yeah. Take a look at the ones that you got, and then if you find something that we didn't talk about yet. <coughs> Excuse me. There were there were quite a few. Yeah. Um, they were a little trolly though, which I wasn't too <laughs> happy about. Let's see here. Oh, here's one. Experience ordering niboshi on eBay? Haven't ever done that. No, I can buy them locally. So (laughs) next question, please. uh, That sounds like a recipe. Okay, let's see. Uh, I have a bunch. I can. Yeah, whatever you feel like answering. I mean, you sent me those questions too, but I'm trying to look through the ones that I have. 
Uh, you know what's great for podcasts? Dead air and dead Dead air. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's, people are so, <laughs> so happy. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, so show us that. Somebody asked best ramen in Illinois. That's really difficult to me to answer. I, huh. Apart from my apartment, I don't know. Um, uh, I really like, you know, there's a couple good shops in Chicago that I like. I really like High Five Ramen in West Loop. They do like a combo style spicy okay. miso. It's kind of cool. And I really love that restaurant because it was really like, it had its own persona for a while. It was like distinctly trying to do the spicy bowl and it was going to go all in. And so when I did this whole spicy miso or the spicy ramen, tonkotsu ramen, a lot of people were just like, yeah, spicy ramen is garbage. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not saying that. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that like the homogenization of the dish because of the shortcuts is a problem. But if you want to do a spicy ramen, go in and just do it the best way you can. So like high five is a really awesome example of this because they make their own spice blend. They make the soup in house. They make their own tare. They were the first guys in Chicago to be buying the Tamomi noodles. And they bought them because they paired really well with the soup, right, from Sun Noodle. So they were really thoughtful about all the components of the dish and how to, like, ultimately highlight this chili, spicy component, how to highlight this as a flavor. So I really love that restaurant still, even to this day, just because I think it had a, it had a perspective on the dish. Um, and that, to me, is, like, where American ramen can be going. I, I really love that restaurant. I also think that the, the the like atmosphere is right on. It's like a smaller restaurant. It kind of hits the right notes. Uh, other restaurants in Chicago, I like I like uh, Takea, which is a place that does a python. Python is pretty rare in Chicago, so to do like a chicken python is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so those are just two restaurants that I really like. I also love Santoka, but that's like I was like 16 when I had my first bowl. <laughs> and it's a pretty good bowl of ramen they yeah. make the soup in-house you know they don't use a base they make the soup they buy the noodles from sun i believe the tari i think is shipped in but again 100 locations you have to outsource production to some capacity uh, so those would probably be some of my picks in illinois it's kind of a related question but v- i don't do we ask this one vg vghs dreamy asked what is your favorite non-ramen food oh man Okay, that's like a super difficult question. <laughs> I would say like top five, right? Okay, top Can five. I pick five. Yeah, yeah. So I love pizza, barbecue. Barbecue is up there, seriously. Nothing <laughs> like some brisket. Um, uh, can't say ramen, obviously. <laughs> the pizza, barbecue, love fried chicken. Huh? Like, I'm working with this chef right now out of these pop-ups at this restaurant called split rail and they do an insane fried chicken there uh just out of control just out of sight i think those would be my top three those are probably my top three pizza barbecue fried chicken and i'll eat those probably too much frankly (laughs) (laughs) too much frankly yeah the the the, some of the the questions i got are a little bit a little bit trolly but i'm just going to go through some of them um Broken Anchor One asks, is instant ramen sacrilege or a guilty pleasure? No. Maybe not even a guilty pleasure. I mean, I think there's, it's just different. It's just like, it's not the same as, it's just like ramen is not the same as pho, even though they're both noodle soups. Instant noodles are not the same as like a bowl of ramen, but it shares a name. They're both delicious though. I love a good little instant ramen. I mean, <laughs> what American didn't eat maruchan? You know what I mean? Like, 
it's tasty. Of course it's tasty. It's got tons of salt and MSG in it. It's uh, delicious. Yep. Like if you don't like it, you're lying to yourself, man. Like there's, but is it the same as ramen? No, it's a totally different experience. It's completely different. It's processed differently. It's got different ingredients. It's got different flavors. It's not the same thing, but that's okay. It's delicious. We used to eat it like uncooked in Hawaii when we were kids. Yeah, I, I used to too, man. You sprinkle the seasoning back on <laughs> yeah. it and take a bite out of it. Yeah, it's, it's very addictive. Very yeah, it, addictive. Got, it actually got banned in public schools in Hawaii because everybody was bringing that and it's so unhealthy really? for you. Yeah, that's yeah. When, that when we were kids. Not great for you. Not yeah, great not great for you at all. Um, let's see. Let's do. You, do you have to be somewhere at five? You said, or are you good to go uh, for a little bit longer? I got a little bit longer. We can do a little bit longer. Okay, let's just Probably. go a little bit more. Just tell me when you have to go, and we can cut it. Sure, um, sure, sure. Let's see. You answered that question. It's like the sun is setting behind me on the yeah. Of this cut. This is I should. I, I should actually. Well, I'm like sitting in the dark. My lighting is coming from behind me, but I should post this video up. Um, are there times? No, we asked that question. So this is kind of this is kind of like a trolley question, but I I, I kind of want to know that. what do you think about this. So Mel Russell Photography asks, can you make oh, American nice. can you make American ramen go away by opening restaurants all over the country? <laughs> uh, no, and I don't actually think that's the way to make American. You know, like what you're talking all, about again, is your bowl, right? Your bowl that so you two did, things, your two troll things. bowl. Yeah, but two things. One, that will always exist, much mm-hmm. like the California role will always yep. exist. Can you make it in a delicate and compelling way? I think so. But you have to recognize that it will always exist because taste exists on a multitude of different elements. And that's true of any food in the world. Some people love their cheap uh, pulled pork they buy at the local grocery store. And some people want a really beautiful one that's made at a local pit house by a pit master who really knows what they're doing. And mm-hmm. they exist under the different continuums of barbecue. And the same is true for ramen, where some people want the packaged stuff and some people want the kotowari stuff and they can both exist. They don't have to be mutually exclusive necessarily. The problem is just that people conflate the two. You should be able to tell the difference. That's the problem that I have with American ramen. Not that it exists, but just that people think the cheap stuff is the same as the expensive stuff. So how do you get pe- how do you get rid of the cheap stuff? You won't, but you should inform people of the differences. And that just means that people need to try more of the expensive stuff and understand that these things exist. Understand that there are soup bases. You just gotta know. Once you know, you're like, oh man, maybe I gotta be a little more careful about uh, where I go to eat. If you care about that kind of thing, maybe you don't. It doesn't matter to you. You know, I'm in marketing, so I think a lot about segments and about segments of the population. And you quickly recognize that the, the population is not homogenous. It exists on a variety of different attributes and thinks about the world in very different ways depending on who you are. So you have to recognize that uh, as a creator of anything, that you will create something that will appeal to some people and totally be meaningless to somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's okay. It's fine for that to be the case. What's more important is that people are informed about the choices that they make. So I don't like that you can go into a ramen shop that makes nothing, but they'll pretend like they make everything. Yeah. That's a problem to me. So how do you get rid of it? Let people know that, that exists and have people figure out what they do and don't want in their bowl. And then naturally things will change and splinter off and stratify. Good. That's a good, that's a great answer. Okay. Let's, this kind of question kind of comes right out of that question. So when you go to a ramen shop, What's the first thing that you look for? This is from the ramen counter, by the way. Okay. Okay. Ramen counter. I, I've talked to that 
I've talked to them a couple times, not a lot. So apologies. I'll try and be more conversational. Um, what do I look for in a ramen shop? Um, is the ramen good? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's really it. Like, I, I look, you know, greatness, not everybody can be great, but greatness can come from anywhere. Uh-huh. This is like from Pixar. <laughs> but like, it's true in that, like, I don't really care if you're downtown or if you're in the burbs or if you're a restaurant with one thing or 20 things. Anybody, any restaurant reasonably can make a good bowl of ramen if they do the things that I think are important, which is balance the dish correctly, make the ingredients and components with intent and purpose, and give the, the dish the attention and respect it deserves. And that can be anywhere. It doesn't. So I don't really ever, I try to not judge from the restaurant itself. Just eat the bowl. Is the bowl good? Then it's good. Like that's the ultimate test to me. Yeah. Now what makes a good bowl of ramen? That's subjective, right? To me, it's balanced. It's not too salty. It's not too savory. It's not too sweet. It's not too gelatinous. It's not too thin. It's got a good, the soup, the soup and the noodles are paired well and they complement each other. The dishes are cohesive and all the components as you were saying earlier, Ryan, align with one another and don't compete with one another. They build each other up to make something mm-hmm. that is uh, unified and tastes good. But that's me. You might have different opinions. Some other people will eat a bowl of ramen and be like, it needs to be creamy. I want it to be super rich. And that's what they look for. And that's what they want. And that's fine. That's their taste. We all have our different tastes. But that's what I look for. And Anybody can do that. You know, it can be anywhere. You know, I mean, Santoka is in a food court, and they make an amazing bowl of, of ramen. You know, similarly, High Five is a tiny little ramen shop in a basement, and they make a crazy, unique, spicy tonkotsu miso bowl. Like, it can be it can be from anywhere. Have you ever That's had an experience where you went into a restaurant and you were just completely taken off guard by how good it was? You know, like you went into some kind of like on its. It could be either in Japan or in America. But have you ha- ever had any of those experiences? So less in Japan, but I think my expectations are often like very high in uh-huh. Japan, right? Like I know that the places I'm hitting are going to be pretty, pretty winners because I've done the research. I've been like looking at logs and stuff. And so almost all the time I'm like, yeah, this was as awesome as I expected it to be. Like this is, this is going to be awesome. And it turned out to be pretty awesome. Um, in America, I mean, the reality is that apart from the handful of shops in Chicago, at least, there are just not that many that are actually doing it at the level that I would want. And they're certainly not doing it at the level that I'm doing it anymore, just being super candid. Like, <laughs> they, you know, they, so I don't think so. Not really. I, I think American ramen has a long way to go. That's just the gist of it. There are, and certainly not just in terms of like understanding balance, but also in terms of being thoughtful and unique without being cliche or uh you know just kind of out of whack out of sync you know i've met certain chefs who were like they want to make their mark on ramen and do a really unique ramen but they're just throwing the kitchen sink into this dish and hoping something will stick and i don't think that's the right approach and then i've met others who are more thoughtful about it so like you know a lot of these home cooks are really really doing interesting dishes a lot of them are doing ones that you know maybe taking a little bit too much liberty with the dish, but some of the guys that I know, you know, Michael, who I mentioned earlier, is doing really good work. My friend Ian, Chopstick Ramen, is also doing really good work on this too. He does a lot of miso. It's like Midwest miso. I love it. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they're finding the right balance between those components. And that to me is like uh, where that goes. That's what wows me. That's what wows me in ramen is like 
the balance and figuring out that balance in an interesting and non-cliche way. Cool. What have you ever like seen anybody make a bowl of ramen? I've been thinking about this to do for a video, but I have no idea how I would do it. Make a bowl of ramen without using anything that was originally from Japan. Sure. Or from Asia or anything. Just like Man, I get asked this question all the time. Oh, yeah. I get asked this question all the time. They're like, could you ever think like you can make an American bowl that has no ingredients from Japan at all? So my friend Clint from Noodle and Haystack and I had an argument about this maybe a couple months ago. And he was like, absolutely not. No way. Hands down, no way. And he makes insane ramen, crazy good ramen. I think the challenge is that here, the, the, real, the reason why it's so difficult is not because I think it's impossible, but because so many of, one of the cornerstones of ramen is umami, mm-hmm. glutamic acid, the sensation of glutamic acid on the palate. And many ingredients in Japanese cuisine either highlight or improve the sensation of glutamic acid on the palate. And very few do this in Western cooking. Mm-hmm. You just don't have that many ingredients to do it. So like, when you think about ramen, which has so much umami, it's often laden with MSG because of um, like to get the umami where it needs yeah, to yeah. be. Like, what is the substitute in the Western world? There are certain ones, tomato paste, porcini, but it's not like soy sauce, which is like a, an essential flavoring. It's not like MSG, which was invented in Japan. So does it count? Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's like, yeah. this is such a difficult question. I think that, I don't think that ramen, and similarly, if you pull out all those flavors and you're just using Western ones, does it even taste like ramen anymore? Mm-hmm. At some point, you're just like eating a noodle soup that happens to be salty. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's really tough. Honestly, it's really difficult. I think that to a certain degree, no. Mm-hmm. That's just the difference. Like, you probably need soy sauce. You probably need miso, maybe. You might need fish, dried fish products. But can you incorporate more Western flavors into the mix? Uh-huh. Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, I do this mushroom truffle show you with like porcini and morale in it. And it's got like porcini powder in it. And it's definitely got like, some people have described it as a beefy component to it. Uh-huh. It's still a soy based ramen, but it has those elements. That's the, that's kind of the way that the balance goes. Like it, it allows you to, uh, incorporate those flavors while still maintaining the, the essential like soul of the dish. If you will. Yeah. That's like, I've been trying to think about that. I've been thinking about that a lot too, where it's like, at what point is it no longer ramen? Like, where does that, right. Where is and that threshold? Is a, right. You know, honestly, Brian, this is such a tough question. Like there's no right, honest answer. I think that if you just have like, okay, it's got to have ramen noodles. So already right. it's got to have an Asian style noodle. This is a Chinese noodle that is now in Japan. So that's not American. Like, but, okay, but, but I'm talking about just like the ingredients. You could get baking soda. You could bake baking soda. That's like an American thing. So you can take yeah, yeah, like, it away, you know. Yeah. Okay. So let's, but like soy sauce, like kikoman yeah, is yeah. made in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Is that's that true. American? No, is that's that American? not American at all. And I yeah. like kikoman soy sauce. I uh-huh. use kikoman soy sauce very regularly in my ramen. And their big manufacturing plant in the United States is in Wisconsin, brewed and made in yeah. Wisconsin with That's American soybeans. America grows tons of soybeans. That's true. Yeah, You can make your own miso. So like <laughs> I make a miso ramen with a small portion of the miso being miso. I fermented in my apartment with American, American grain and uh-huh. American rice and American, sorry, it's just, there's no grain. It's American rice yeah, 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 and yeah. American soybeans. Uh, that's American miso as that's far true. as I'm concerned, yeah. right? Like, but it's a Japanese ingredient. So it's that's like, true. what's the, yeah. you ultimately have to decide, like, is it the flavor? Is it the idea? 
to me, the flavor of miso is distinctly Japanese. Mm -hmm. And there's just no getting around that. Like, even if you change all the ingredients and you're not using koji anymore, and you're, but you're still using koji. So it's still miso. It's still Japanese. <laughs> it's distinctly Japanese, right? Like, but I don't think there's a good answer to this question just because I think that we associate ramen with certain core Japanese flavors like soy sauce, like yeah. miso, like dried fish, like bonito, like kombu. And these are, these are part of what our brains see the dishes being. Yeah. That's a great. Can you make it? Can you make a tomato ramen? Sure. <laughs> yeah. You can do it. But yeah. like at some point you're like, I'm eating minestrone. <laughs> ramen you know? It's, like, like, it's kind of like, can you make sushi without rice? You know, yeah. like, can you, or yeah, sushi can you without make, gari, yeah. like yeah. sushi without vinegar. It's like, yeah, yeah. you can, but you at can. some point it's like, what is <laughs> yeah. this? Like, it's just raw fish rolled in a tube. I don't yeah. know. And then what's the tube? It's not nori, is it? Like nori is part of the yeah, Japanese. Yeah. So it's like, I think when I think about American ramen in, in a thoughtful way, I think it's taking the core components of the Japanese dish, noting that it's going to have Japanese flavors, but using either local or more interesting regional flavors to amplify those, or by taking seasonality and American ingredients as components. So it doesn't mean that you have to push away Japanese aesthetic and Japanese this and Japanese that. I'm saying this is white guy, so I understand the irony of this, but it is important to recognize the balance. Like if you get rid of everything, it's not ramen anymore. It's not just the noodle really. Yeah. I say it's just a noodle, but it's more than just the noodle. Yeah. 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 That's a, man, that's a kind of a, a great so sorry, question. Sorry. Sorry, no, man. No, like, that was my question. That was my question. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I'm saying like, sorry, Ryan, like it's going to be a tough haul for you to make an American bowl. That has yeah. Like, no, I'm just thinking about like, cause so I get comments on my YouTube channel that like, I can't get, x y median i can't get you know whatever it's like well, what can you do with just things you could get like safeway or you know or kroger's whatever yes. you you know like what could you do yes. with just that? that that's what i've been trying to think about but yeah you're right like th there is going to be a certain point where can you call it sushi without rice like you, know? you can make a shiotare with water salt and msg yeah 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 but you don't need anything still, else yeah yeah is MSG count? I don't know. Yeah, that's like, the thing because it's made in America now. MSG is made in America with American corn. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like you can make it with that. Yeah. And you can make uh, shoyu ramen where the soy sauce is kikoman. So you find it any any supermarket has yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. it doesn't have any kombu or anything. It just has any some MSG or it has porcini and morale and other dried mushrooms that are from, that are more Western. You can do that. But is it... <laughs> uh, where yeah. where is the balance is soy sauce count like yeah 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 it's, it's hard to say it's really hard to say we could probably talk an hour just about this one topic but i think that's yeah. a, i think that's a great place to end the q a i think you kind of have to head out soon too so yeah, i don't want to look at this yeah. it's crazy we <laughs> talked until it actually the sun set that is outrageous yeah, that's crazy thanks have so much fun. mike this is this has been freaking amazing man like Dude, anytime can't believe yeah We'll definitely have you back on the podcast because I think we could talk another two hours. Yes, yes. It's I'm always happy to chat, always happy to talk ramen, as you can <laughs> tell. But uh this is fun, always good to chat. Um, I'm curious to see where this continues to go. If you ever want to have me back on, let me know. Yeah, uh, had a good time. Let's 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 have you ask everybody who's listening a question, like I did with David. You can ask them anything. Ask them anything. 
I don't know, like for the comments or what? I don't know the, the I don't remember this part of the game. Oh, I just like, I just like, let you just give them something to think about. And if they want to leave their answer in the comments, then. Well, I think we should just ask them, what do they think American ramen is? In terms of like a real American ramen and not just a stereotype. Like, can ramen become an American thing or is it destined to be Japanese by its definition? That's maybe my question. And I would be curious to hear what people say about that. Um, that to me is very fascinating complex topic cool all right guys leave it in the comments if you have an answer to that question or your thoughts on that and we'll talk to mike very soon i'm sure of that yeah thanks everybody yeah thanks everybody once again i'd just like to give a really big thank you to mike for coming on the show you know it was really fun talking to him i could have talked to him for probably another two hours but the sun was setting and he had somewhere to go in chicago but I'm sure we're going to have him back on the show again and we'll just talk ramen for another few hours. So please let me know what you guys think about this podcast. I'm having a blast doing it. But if you like to request a future guest or something, just hit me up on Instagram at Way of Ramen. And if you'd like to learn, well, not learn, if you'd like to follow me trying to learn how to make ramen, you can watch my videos on YouTube, youtube.com. Oh, actually, I don't have a special URL. You have to like look it up. Just search for The Way of Ramen on YouTube and my channel will come up. All right, I'll see you guys all in the next episode. Peace. Oh, and I forgot. Follow Mike uh, on Instagram, at ramenover. Okay, I'm going to go for real now. Bye.